On this prequel episode, we've got our Born Identity follow-up fan polls. We're learning about posthumous publication and previewing Radio Free Album of Hello and welcome back to this film's lit podcast where we're talking about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel week, and we got a lot to get into, so let's get right into it with our patron shoutouts. We have four new patrons this week. Well, three new ones and one who upgraded their pledge. First up, upgrading from the $2 Newberry Medal Award winning level to the $5 Hugo Award winning level, and thus uh, unlocking our bonus content is Gary French. Thank you, Gary. New at the $5 Hugo Award-winning level, we have Lucy T, Pat, and then at the $15 Academy Award-winning level, we have Ben Wilcox. Thank you all so very much for signing on and signing up over at patreon.com slash thisfilmislit. We just put out a new episode, a new bonus content episode where we discussed Shadow and Bone, the Netflix series, uh, compared it to the book series. It's not like a full. I mean, it's about as long as a normal mm-hmm. episode, but it's not. You know, you it's not our the, like. It's not our. Usual don't have the format. segments and yeah. stuff, and um, I definitely dominated the conversation in that one because I had read yeah. all the books and everything, and just had more opinions than you. Did on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I told you to drive. So. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. You said you you go, and I was like, okay, I will. Um, but we discussed uh, Shadow and Bone and, and our feelings on the first season and uh, its comparison to the books, et cetera, and made some predictions and where we thought it might be going from there. Well, I made those predictions again. You haven't read any of the books yeah. past the first one. So. <laughs> but you can check that out over at patreon.com slash this film is lit. As always, we have our Academy Award winning patrons, and they are the newly joining their ranks uh, newly Ben Wilcox. And then our old guard, Jeff Niederhofer, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, I'm Looking Forward to Voting Ron Johnson Out of Office, and Alina Dolet-Kolova. I don't remember who Ron Johnson is, but it he's, sounds uh, bad. Isla, he's, he's a Republican congressman, which is... In what state? Wisconsin, I want to say. That sounds right. Sounds like a Ron Johnson. Sounds I, I like also a good... looked him up when I saw this this new name because I, I recognized the name, but I wasn't sure what horrible person Wisconsin, he was. Yeah. So uh, did he do anything specific, or is he just a? Um, a I think just... most recently he spread a lot of COVID, uh, COVID misinformation. Perfect. Yeah. Lovely. Fantastic. Well, there you go. Just what we need. <laughs> I am also looking forward to you voting Ron Johnson out of office. Yes. Agreed. Go go get him. All right. That is going to do it for our patron shout outs. We're going to get into now our fan poll follow up for The Born Identity. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Okay. Let me take a drink because we have a lot of comments. I don't remember seeing this many and then there was a lot. Like a, there were also more than I remembered when I started yeah. going back and looking. I was like, oh, we did actually get a lot of feedback. So on Facebook, we had two votes for the book and four votes for the movie. The poll has not actually ended because Facebook is the worst yeah. and changed my end time again. But that was the count as of earlier today when I started making up these notes. And um, We do have a couple comments. Jennifer said... 
I detest the spy genre fairly passionately, but what I really like is stories involving amnesia or memory loss. I always felt like a big theme of this movie was what makes you fundamentally you. Is your moral compass dependent on your memories and sense of self, or do you become someone new? Movie Jason appears, at least to me, to worry he is a bad guy, or he has been a bad guy, or will have to become a bad guy to save himself. I feel like he had a sense of his rescue about who he was and everything he learns that shakes his assumptions and sense of self. There's comfort in finding out who you aren't, in finding out you aren't who you thought you were, and if you can't rely on or even trust yourself, what's left? I do remember noping out of reading the book a few years ago, only a few pages in, because I could already tell it I was not the intended target demographic, but I honestly can't remember if it was too much 70s or too much spy that put me off. So I chose the movie because I like the action fun, uh, I find the action fun, the CIA stuff tolerable, and the characters generally likable. I would watch it over and over. There you go. Interesting. Yeah, we didn't really get into the discussions about like identity and stuff mm-hmm. um, and what it means, you know, if you lose your um, your memory. Yeah. Uh, you know, are you still essentially that same person? Because that can get into a lot of things in terms of like, you know, um, <clears throat> even things like uh, like far flung sort of sci fi future stories about like if you if there's a way like peop- if somebody's a criminal does crimes of whatever sort. And there's something we can do where we literally go into their brain and like, you know, Mm -hmm. cross a few wires and flick a few switches and then they don't do that anymore. Um, Like are like, you know, that idea of like, is it um, the morality of that, the morality of them being uh, it's it gets really interesting and complicated. Um, And like like so, you know, if he doesn't remember and he has no inclination at that point to do any bad things Mm -hmm. anymore, do we. Does he get thrown in jail? Do, you know, like, yeah, like for the for yeah. the crimes he has already committed, he has literally no um, possible. Uh, like again, assuming some sort of advanced super science or something that like says, yeah, absolutely, he's not gonna, yeah, you know, I, be a repeat criminal or anything. I like think that. it is a good um, kind of thematic analysis of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of like your sense of self. Interestingly, I would say that it's probably a stronger theme present in the book oh, yeah. than it is in the movie. Yeah, well, you definitely, I mean, you know, I would imagine we get a little bit more insight into him in the book, like yeah. into his thoughts and stuff. For sure. In the movie. I mean, we, sure. it's definitely there in the movie, too, because you, you definitely, you know, there, there are lines that allude to that idea, mm-hmm. but it's definitely just more of a sort of an action thrill ride. But yeah, cool. Charlene said, it's probably been 10 years since I read the book or watched the movie. I've been meaning to reread it for a while, but it wasn't going to happen before your episode. So for now, I'm sticking up for the book. I thought the book did a better job at the psychological stuff. I really felt lost with the character. I also liked the extra wrinkle of the Kane persona. I suspect I'd have a lower tolerance today for some of the of-its-time issues, though, so whenever I get around to that reread, I may change my mind. Interesting. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, there's lots of stuff that even just a short time ago, I think a lot of us have, Yeah. we're, we're less aware of, and we talk about this a lot, but we're less aware of <laughs> things that definitely were of its time, uh, and going back to them can be sort of jarring. Yeah, for sure. And there wasn't anything particularly of its time about the movie in terms of, 
You know what I mean? There was yeah. not, not any like regressive ideas that we've gone like, oof, we, yeah. don't, we don't say that anymore, do that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> there, at least there's nothing that jumps out in my memory. So uh, I think the movie generally holds up pretty well. Um, and I think Charlene was the only person to stick up for the book. Defend so the book, right? thank you, Charlene. And Kelly, who was our Academy Award winner patron who requested, who requested the, yeah. the Born Identity. Kelly said, I love the spy thriller genre. I love Robert Ludlum as an author. I love this book. But I chose the movie this time. <laughs> <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> While I love all those other things, I fanatically love movies with ridic ridiculous action sequences that exist just because they can. It's why the Fast and the Furious movies are my biggest guilty pleasure. This movie feeds that need in me in a way the book doesn't, even as much as I adore it. As evidenced by the car chase chapter in Midnight Sun, mm. action is hard to convey on the written page. You have to feel it entirely. Plus, the movie has Julia Stiles, and the book doesn't. Although Katie wasn't as enamored with the movie or the source material as I am, I appreciate you doing the episode. Fantastic. Well, thank you for recommending it. It was a lot of fun to watch and talk about. Um, we did one of the things we realized upon, and we can address it now, uh, <laughs> after recording the episode and put, putting it out and everything, we had done a social post that was like, is Julia Stiles character in the movie? And then we never discussed it. <laughs> now, I mean, yeah, I guess by implication, or was, it in, was, she, was her character in the book? Um, and it just never came up. Didn't even think about it. Uh, I think by, you know, omission, you can kind of assume maybe she wasn't in the book, but uh, she's not. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, that, I, that can't, I can't speak to the million born sequels, right. but not in the but first she's book. not in the first book. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes I remember to tell you that I did those tease posts. I well, I saw always. I saw that. Like I, I, you know, the posts go through my feed every now and then as I'm scrolling through them, uh, and I saw that I just forgot about it. So, <laughs> so on Twitter we had one vote for the book and ten votes for the movie. Ian from Wine Country, he slash him, said, "I loved both the book and the movie." but for wildly different reasons. The book had the old-school slow-burn spy drama, while the movie, having Matt Damon be calmly and confusedly badass, gave us a newer, more realistic spy action adventure for the 2000s. I'm picking the movie. I also always like to describe the adaptation as being like a spy with no memory named Jason Bourne is the only common element, which <clears throat> is not wrong. Not entirely wrong, yeah. <laughs> Matt Nelson, large cartoonist at large, said, I'll admit to being not much of a fan of spy fiction, but reading this book was so <laughs> boring. The movie was much more entertaining. Well, we applaud you soldiering through. Well, although you didn't say you made it all the way through the book, so maybe you dropped out. It's a pretty but... long book. I, I wouldn't blame anyone for dropping if out. If you gave it a go and then we're yeah. like, woof. Yeah, because it was a long one for sure. It was a long one. Jesse said... I haven't read this Born book, but I tried another in the series, and wow, did that not work. <laughs> I thought if I was familiar with the character, it would be fine, but I was completely lost while also a bit bored. I'm going to say these stories work better as movies. P.S., just to be a little 
hashtag um actually matt damon was named people's sexiest man alive oh, man. back in 2007 and Wild. i thought that i thought that as soon as you said it in the, in the episode I, mean, I was like i bet he chances was are that uh, yeah fair point. enough like big enough name actors that yeah. usually cycle through there at some point and again he's not unattractive he's just not like brad pitt like to me i don't know like he's just yeah less like i don't know uniquely attractive he's as some like, of those um, movie stars are there's not a male version of it he's like the girl next door yeah kind of he's the boy next door yeah he's not brad pitt right but you wouldn't kick him out either. no no again he's a very handsome and like it's very symmetrical face i'm not <laughs> he's very handsome i'm just like to me i don't think of him as sexy so much as just like that's a handsome guy, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. But good for him. What What was 2007? What would have come out? I mean, I Born was, was a few years. Yeah, he was still doing Born movies in 2007. I wonder if there was something else around there. But yeah, because I mean, yeah, that was in the middle of all the Born mm-hmm. sequels and stuff. Um, I'm just wondering if there was something else that, uh, who knows? Anyways, interesting. The Departed the was Departed. right before that, 2006. Okay. So that would be another one. Maybe the yeah him doing the Boston accent works. For, <laughs> I think he has Maybe the Boston that, accent. That, in that, that did one. it for people. Yeah. All right. Shelby Suderman said, "I preferred the book's opening where we get two characters we don't know in a fight, and we follow one of them as he goes overboard." I know it's one of those things can, that can be really hard to do without overwhelming your reader, but I enjoyed it. I also preferred the book's plot of a spy undercover as an assassin to catch another assassin who then loses his memory. There's a lot of potential there, and I was disappointed that the movie disregarded it. I think it was a clever nod to the book to make Bourne compassionate about kids in the movie because we find out late in the book that he lost a wife and child to violence, which is what led him down the path he was on when he lost his memory. Hmm. All that said... I'm giving it to the movie because I liked the characters better, and it was shorter and less repetitive than the book. Yeah, that's similar stuff, but also some kind of contradicting uh, opinions because you preferred mm-hmm. the movies yeah, I preferred opening. the movies open. Yeah. Lucy T said, "I read the book around when the movie came out. Found it heavy going, from what I remember. The movie was just fun." There you go. And Patrick Wood said. The Bourne movies were some of my favorite action movies growing up, so naturally I tried to read the book in high school, but gave up about (laughs) one-third of the way through because I found Bourne's personality and his treatment of Marie and the the growth of their relationship so off-putting. Wow, look at this woke little high schooler out here (laughs) not tolerating this in his his novel. My favorite aspect of these movies is how the chaotic handheld style adds to the intensity of the situations while managing to keep the action scenes clear and comprehensible, although the two car chases at the end of Supremacy and Ultimatum get a little messy and hard to follow. I I don't remember those movies very well. Like I said, I know I've seen uh, Supremacy, the second one. I Mm -hmm. think I've seen Ultimatum, but I don't recall. Um, and I remember almost nothing about them. I do. Uh, we didn't talk a ton about the actual like camera work and stuff. We did a little bit more in the prequel um, mm-hmm. than we did in the actual episode. But I do agree because uh, we we got to right around the time of this and and after this, mainly because of the first Bourne movie, or it was one of the big reasons we got a lot of like shaky cam action sequences became yeah. like a big thing. And 
the I agree with uh, Patrick here that the 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 way all of the the movies that tried to emulate it afterwards, not all of them, but a lot of the movies that tried to emulate it afterwards, and the reason that Shaky Cam became such like a a thing. a thing that people complained about, like started to complain about. I mentioned it's like, oh gosh, it's shaky mm-hmm. cam action sequences. You can't see anything. Is that they weren't done as competently because because that is a big thing in Born is that even though the camera is shaking a lot, you can still they do a good job of rooting you within the uh, whatever like environment you're mm-hmm. in and making it very clear what is happening throughout a given shot. You never yeah. feel lost within yeah. the action Which, and scene. And that's a problem that I have with action scenes yeah. a lot is yeah. feeling lost in them. And, and particularly with shaky cam ones, because you, you, you it, there's just a blur of, of things flying around and like fists move, you know, it's, and, and <laughs> depending on the lighting and, and how it's shot, it can be really hard to tell, but that you never, at least with in the first movie, you never have that issue. Um, and I think that's a really good point because it is something that became a huge sort of um, trend in action movies is that similar style. But it does add if you can do it right and do it well and in the right movie. And again, in a movie where our main character is completely like without bearings and is mm-hmm. like lost within his own <laughs> mind, let alone within the world he's in that chaotic nature to the camera work sort of informs yeah, the character really well. Uh, whereas other movies who copied that because the Bourne movies were so popular, it doesn't necessarily always fit thematically. And also if you don't do it really well, it turns into a really confusing mess. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing that we've kind of started to get away from that again, uh, at least in really well done mm-hmm. um, action films like the Wick, John Wick movies don't, um, there's a lot of chaotic camera movement, but it's not the sort of same, not the similar type of like uh, shaky cam sort of um, do you think nightmare. We'll, do you think we'll see a trend cycle reemergence of the shaky cam? It's it never it's never gone away. It's still used in movies. It's still used, and again, it's one of those things that a lot of times it's used. I think it's one of those it's one of those um, techniques that can be used by lesser skilled filmmakers to try to hide weaker choreography, like mm-hmm. not even less skilled filmmakers, but less if, you, if you're making an action film and your choreo- choreography, your fight um, choreography and stuff and or your stunt talent or whoever's doing it isn't as talented, you can hide more with a shaky camera. Yeah. Like you can get away with a little bit less talented um performers and and choreo if if your camera's moving around like crazy and cutting Fair. constantly like it's it's easy to hide stuff whereas if um you have you know really talented stunt performers or really talented uh fight choreographers and stuff um like if you go back and watch jackie chan movies there's a reason that the camera's just on a wide and sits on one shot because mm-hmm. he's him and all of his stunt people are so incredibly talented yeah. that it's way more impressive just to watch them do the things <laughs> they're doing and you don't have to hide anything. But because it's abused, sort of abused by by filmmakers and stuff that know that, uh, OK, we, we can get away by hiding some of this if we shave, move the camera around sort of chaotically, uh, it, it, it tends to be. Uh, really noticeable, like a bad wig. Like when it's done poorly, it's mm-hmm. it's very noticeable. But it, <laughs> but when done well, it still works. It's just, um, yeah, it is interesting. So on Instagram, we had a little snafu on Instagram this week. The movie got ninety one percent of the vote, and the book got nine percent. 
but I don't have an actual count because apparently if you wait too long to go back and look at the story, Instagram disappears that information. There you go. So now we know. We usually get a fair <laughs> number of votes. Yeah. Them. So it's probably like 20 votes and it was like 19 to 1 or wait. I mean, the, 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 right the movie math? clearly smashed here. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know how many total votes we got. We did have one comment on my uh, regular feed post. Um, Gareth Matthews dot author replied to our post with three clapping emojis. I believe it's Gareth. Gareth. Or, or Gareth H. Matthews, Gareth? but it looks like Gareth to me. Anyway, sorry. Uh, yes, they replied. He replied with three clapping emojis, which I guess was in support of my call that the movie was better. It seems like it. I, I don't. The... I don't think they were trying to clap back because no. there was no additional information. So, if it was a clap back, it was not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, final numbers. Where do we end up at? Well, we don't technically have a count thanks to Instagram, but I think we can pretty safely give this one to the movie, considering that it won by a landslide on all three platforms. There you go. All right. Uh, according to you all, uh, Born Identity, the movie is better. But we appreciate everybody's feedback. Really cool. Uh, we had some interesting stuff that time. Lots of different kind of points to discuss. Uh, and that was fun. So now it is time for us to learn a little bit about posthumous publication. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So posthumous publication is exactly what it sounds like it is the practice of publishing a book after the author has died uh many discussions about posthumous publications start with tolkien mm -hmm. when jrr died in 1973 he left four full-length unpublished novels and a whole bunch of other uncollected papers and things behind and his youngest son, Christopher, who actually died very recently, he passed in January 2020, spent almost half his lifetime annotating that work and preparing it for publication. And those include a few titles that I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation on. Um, History of Middle Earth. I think you uh, nailed that one. <laughs> I got that one. Um, uh, Baron and Luthien. Mm -hmm. uh, the Fall of Gondolin. And the Silmarillion. I normally hear it pronounced without the first L, like even though it's there. Like I normally hear it Cimmerillion, but I don't know if that's correct. I just normally Which hear it that way. I think is still getting adapted by like Amazon. Well, well, okay. So uh, <laughs> we don't need to get into that. Yeah, I, the Cimmerillion, from what I understand, and I've never read it, is it's very long. Um, it is essentially like it's it, like the Middle Earth Bible. It's got all uh, tons of stories from yeah. Middle Earth in in ages past, and they are adapting a certain time period from earlier like the second age or the first day i can't remember what age they're doing yeah. on in the amazon show but they're so the lord of the rings the movies take place during and the books take place during the third age i believe yes the yeah. third age and this is from one of the previous right like, epochs uh, in in middle earth so but it covers like a lot of like the lore yes. and like and the, setting up middle earth and the and the and the which we talked a little bit in our lord of the rings episodes about like the the what the the cre the sort of creatures that like gandalf 
mm-hmm. is and and the gods essentially of the universe of Middle Earth and the angels and stuff and it's very complicated and I know very little about it but yeah yeah that's what the Silmarillion a lot of it covers right so we have all of that stuff because of Christopher Tolkien who essentially acted as the keeper of his father's legacy which is kind of a best case scenario um, because the ethics of posthumous publication can often be a really gray area. Uh, typically, the writing will fall into the hands of the family um, or maybe an agent or a lawyer. And from there, they can essentially do whatever they like with it because it's an intellectual estate. Now, some authors will stipulate either in an official will or otherwise, you know, maybe it's just something that they've said a lot or written down somewhere that they do not want their work or certain items to be published. For example, basically all of Emily Dickinson's poems and letters were published published posthumously after she told her sister Lavinia to destroy her work after her death. Now, obviously, Lavinia did not honor that Lavinia wish. wanted to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's because of that that we have the collected works of one of the most famous and prolific American poets. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, posthumous publication can actually bring fame to a deceased author. For example, Henry David Thoreau was never famous during his lifetime. He never made it. Um, but after he died... He kind of skyrocketed. Uh, John Kennedy Tools, A Confederacy of Dunces, was released 11 years after his death, and it won a Pulitzer Prize, um, despite the fact that the author was constantly getting rejected (laughs) during his lifetime. And on the flip side of that, you have examples like Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, Lee often stated throughout her lifetime that To Kill a Mockingbird would be the only book she published, but in 2015... Ghost Set a Watchman was released. Do you remember this? I remember this. This yes, was that, a big controversy. Uh, uh, the uh, infamously terrible uh, yeah. sequel to. <laughs> well, hang on now. <laughs> to kill a mind. Um, so this is not technically an example of posthumous publication because Lee passed in 2016, but I wanted to include it because partly because it is recent and more people are going to remember this, but I also think it's a good example of how ignoring an author's wishes can cause harm. Mm -hmm. And full disclosure, while I have read To Kill a Mockingbird, I did not read Go Set a Watchman, Uh, so I'm I'm going off of reviews here and things that other people have said. Okay. So the novel was marketed as a sequel to Mockingbird, but... It later became pretty obvious that Watchmen was, in fact, a first draft of Lee's most famous novel. It was something that she wrote and then set aside and kind of revamped the whole story, which is what got us to kill a mockingbird. Now, Watchmen, as you alluded to, was not particularly (laughs) well received. Uh, with many critics noting that it read like exactly what it was, a first draft. And many readers were also upset by the characterization of Atticus Finch, who is very much the moral center of Mockingbird, but a completely different character in Watchmen. And the fact that it was marketed as a sequel did damage to the legacy of To Kill a Mockingbird and to some extent the legacy of Lee herself. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the publication of Watchmen also raised a lot of questions about the ethics of the whole situation, with many pointing out that it seemed like Lee's lawyer, Tonya Carter, had been kind of sitting on the manuscript and waiting for the right moment to pounce. There was like, There was definitely some shady stuff that happened, most notably Carter waiting to put publication into motion until after the death of Lee's sister, Alice, who was her primary caregiver and who was in charge of Lee's affairs. Of that situation, New York Times columnist Joe Nocera wrote, a publisher that cared about Harper Lee's legacy would have taken those words to heart and declined to publish Gosetta Watchmen, the idea that Lee eventually transformed into a gem. That HarperCollins decided instead to manufacture a phony literary event isn't surprising. It's just sad. Yep. So posthumous publication, I think it raises a lot of interesting ethical questions. Like, obviously, the diary of Anne Frank is an important historical document, but, like, is it ethical to publish a 13-year-old's diary without her consent? Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's one thing to publish a fully formed manuscript, but the lines start to get really blurry when it comes to things like drafts and notes and personal writing like journals and letters. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely interesting because it's it's definitely what I mean, obviously, and this this is, again, obvious that like certain things like, okay, they they were basically done with the book. It was going through revisions and they died during the editing process. We're going to finish some revisions with, you know, somebody close to them, a friend, whatever, somebody mm-hmm. that, you know, um, even if that's not somebody that like, they were like, we, they never said, you know, maybe they died unexpectedly or something, but it's like, okay, we're going to wrap this up and publish it because they clearly wanted to publish it yeah, uh, and we're planning to publish it and it just didn't make it to that. That's an obvious like, okay, sure. Yeah, that probably fine. Even though you didn't get express, maybe you didn't get express consent from them to like publish it posthumously it seems you know they were on the the journey to publish it other things obviously a little more complicated um if maybe they weren't ever planning on publishing it or something like that and then even more complicated with like you mentioned things like um the, like the diary of Anne Frank right. and like stuff. Like when it has historical significance or when it's ephemera from an important writer. Yeah. Like um, all of Virginia Woolf's diaries are published. Right. You know? Like, yeah. W- what are the ethics of that? It is. Boy, it's really it is complicated. I'd be interested to talk. You know, it'd be interested to hear uh, somebody who who who's maybe thought about it, that specific topic more. Um, I'm inclined first blush and this is not at all <laughs> not at all a uh a super thought out like stance um it's just sort of my first blush thinking about it unless there is expressed like unless the person has expressed ex- explicit wishes for it not to be published to people and they're aware of that i think i'm mostly okay with it specifically because and i to me it has a lot to do with like i don't know i don't know maybe not i don't know it's not it is complicated because but i would i would tend to say like sure like if i die and i had i had had something that i was writing that somebody wants to publish fine like generally speaking Hmm. unless it's something really weird and specific like 
it is a little weird, you know, publishing somebody's like journal, like diary. Yeah. Uh, in in particular, like again, mentioning the Anne Frank one, that's a very interesting because it it it's so many intersecting like yeah angles of like okay, it's a it's a like it's ex- it's a child child it's a child who uh, who's writing a, a an explicitly personal thing. Yeah. And, um, but it's about a very important historical event. And like, it's, yeah, there's a lot of layers there that are incredibly complicated and it's, I don't think we're going to figure out, come down one side or the other, whether or not that was like a morally correct thing to do, but to, to publish that. But, um, I don't know. It is interesting. So I'm really interested to hear what our listeners think about posthumous publication, a good, bad Somewhere in the middle. Maybe we need to take it case by case. I think it's a, yeah. I think ultimately <laughs> I land on it's case by case and <laughs> and it's super complicated. Um, because there is, I think there is, there there is even, I think, an argument to be made that something could be immoral. Like you're definitely committing a some level of an immoral act by publishing Anne Frank's diary. I, I think mm-hmm. inherently there's probably some argument to be made that it is um, you're violating her privacy. You're violating her consent and, and putting her words out there. Um, it is all posthum- posthumously. So you're not like actively violating their consent in any way. It's, it's a little different, but still, um, but that may in fact be outweighed by you know, that moral transgression may in fact be outweighed by the effect that the actual publication has on the world. Like Mm -hmm. the, the sort of, um, humanization of, uh, somebody going through the, the Holocaust and their experience with it and the light that that shed on the, that human experience and the suffering experienced and the, maybe the way that that makes, all the people who read it a little more sympathetic, a little more uh, sort of cognizant and, and a little more like looking out for like, maybe we shouldn't be committing uh, genocides or whatever. You don't get what I'm saying that that may in fact outweigh that initial moral Uh, transgression. Yeah. I sure wish we'd learned that. Right. I'm not (laughs) saying we have, I'm just saying that I think, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I know it's, but I think that you could make that argument that, that the ultimate good that the book has done mm-hmm. outweighs that initial moral transgression. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Well, and I do think it's interesting because you can have two cases that appear very similar. Like I mentioned Emily Dickinson and then also Harper Lee, both yeah. of whom had like explicitly said, like, I don't want you to publish any more of my stuff. Right. And Emily Dickinson you know, obviously, I'm glad that we have the right. collected works of Emily Dickinson, yes. but for Harper Lee, it turned out kind of disastrous. Right? Yeah, and yeah, and that's an, yeah, that's another thing. The uh, the effects of it, the um, the consequences of it, are <laughs> uh, also play into like how we grade it. Because again, yeah. I, I I would say the same thing about uh, Anne Frank. If if somehow Anne Frank's the publication of her uh, diary, which was already a you know, I I think you know morally dubious at best. Um, by publishing it, if if the outcome of that was bad in yeah. some way, like if it, uh, yeah, had, a, if it would... had a net negative effect on the world on top of the initial moral transgression, then obviously, yes, that's yeah. like not good. I but... think that's a good point. Yeah, we would look at that very differently if 
somehow it had a net bad effect. Yeah, and I guess it's impossible to know what its net effect on the world is, but it does seem like, at least, you know, taking the, the vibe of the thing and the temperature of uh, the Diary of Anne Frank and the effect it's had on, 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 you know, the people that have read it and stuff, I it feels like it's probably had a net net or a net positive effect in terms of, again of of bringing a human of humanizing and and, and sort of not even humanizing um what's the word like localized like uh mm-hmm. giving us a very specific viewpoint into this this yeah. period of history yeah. in a way that is very affecting and hopefully um makes people uh, again, more compassionate, more empathetic, and more uh, on guard for things like, <laughs> you know, being being a, a passive uh, part of a genocide. Um, we know that's not necessarily it's not it's not like it's not like fixing people, but it is maybe hopefully having a, a net positive effect. Eh, anyways, super fascinating, complicated topic. Um, yeah, we so know good. we know we know a moral philosopher. We may have to get him on to discuss the morality of uh, of uh, posthumous publication because that could be interesting. All right, let's go ahead now and preview Radio Free Albemuth, the book. I had the strangest feeling. I've been asleep my whole life waiting for something to happen. Maybe they're just ordinary dreams. I think I'm being programmed in my sleep. Just because I write science fiction doesn't mean I believe in this stuff. I don't even think flying softens are real. The Cold War may be over. The secret organization, Aramcha, is still committed to undermining our democratic institutions. The only way you get him out of the old office is in a casket. So I did try to figure out how to pronounce Alphabet. <laughs> yeah. And I found... I found an interview with the director of the movie and the the person interviewing him pronounced it Albemuth. Albemuth. Which I think is what we're going That's with. That's what I'm going with, Albemuth. And then in the movie trailer, Alanis Morissette's character pronounces it Albumuth. 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 Which like maybe moo, like maybe, a cow. Yeah, maybe the Canadian pronunciation. It's funny because I would... <laughs> My other, that wasn't my other option. Mine was Albemuth or Albemuth. Yeah. And, and, and she didn't say Muth. She said Muth, which yeah. is different. Yeah. And worse. I'm telling you, it's Canadian. <laughs> it might be the Canadian version. <laughs> so Radio Free Albemuth is a dystopian novel by Philip K. Dick. It was written in 1976 and it was published posthumously which is why we talked about it would be that. hilarious if it wasn't <laughs> we just yeah, had we a just random randomly uh, but it was segment. it was published posthumously in 1985 it was originally titled Valis System A and it was his first attempt to kind of work through his experiences that he had in early 1974 when he experienced some hallucinations following the use of painkillers after some dental work. This is the time period where Philip K. Dick thought he was chatting with God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently it made a big impression on him. Yeah. Uh, But his publishers requested extensive rewrites of the novel um, and he ended up canning that project and he reworked it kind of as part of the Vallis trilogy. Uh, he incorporated the plot line of Radio Free Albemuth as a backdrop film in that trilogy. 
Um, but Arbor House acquired the rights to Radio Free Albemuth in 1985, which was three years after his death in 1982. Uh, they then published an edition under the current title, um, prepared from a corrected typescript, which was given by Dick to his friend Tim Powers, another science fiction writer. The word albemuth was derived by Dick from the uh, Arabic word al-behemoth, which means the whale. Oh. Um, and it that is itself a reference to fomalhaut, fomalhaut, which is a star. Um, it is the star that Dick at one time believed the entity of Valis came from in real life. Interesting. Back when he was talking to God. Yeah, back when he killers. was chatting with, uh, yes. with, with Valis, who, which is a sort of God, kind of. Yeah, kind of. When it was published, Kirkus Reviews called the novel well-constructed, absorbing at first, later somberly single-minded, a bleak and utterly depressing statement. Very excited to continue reading this. And Publishers Weekly said, Though not one of Dick's best novels, it is an engrossing, nonstop excursion into a believable vision of hell. Interesting. Um, the reviews that I saw of this, uh, I saw a couple little other snippets, were generally kind of mixed. Yeah. Like some people were like, whoa, this is really great. And other people were like, this is very clearly a first draft. It. Yeah, that makes sense. It's if I don't think Philip K. Dick wrote anything that was like terrible. Probably mm-hmm. this is when you're that talented. Is this probably most even his first drafts were probably pretty had a lot of interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like it doesn't surprise me that the reviews on something like this were like yeah. Some people were like oh great. Other people were like eh, it's, you know yeah. I mean, I made it like three chapters in before I like went to find you and was yeah. like, you're going to want to read this one. Yeah. Um, I didn't read A Scanner Darkly, but based on watching the movie and like listening to you and Aaron talk about it. Yeah. This feels a little bit more in the vein of like A Scanner Darkly than it does something like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep or, or Minority, Minority Report. Report. Yeah, it does feel and I, I'm i not a we're neither of us are are, are dick scholars. No, um, certainly but, not. Uh, Aaron would be the closest that we know to that probably, and uh, he would not even claim that title, I'm sure. But um, there, I, 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 it does feel uh, from the the handful of uh, PKD stuff that we've done that there's almost like two distinct PKD oeuvres. Yeah. <laughs> there is <laughs> like like two branches. Yeah, there's there are like two wolves inside. Yeah, them. it feels and I and they may be split temporarily or they may not be. It seems like they may there they are in fact probably split a little more temporarily. Like the earlier PKD stuff is a little more like hard sci-fi mm-hmm. um with lots of philosophical I mean all of this stuff is incredibly like rich philosophically, but um a little more hard sci-fi, a little more uh sort of interesting philosophical questions wrapped up in like hard sci-fi stories and then some of his later stuff gets a little bit more um once he'd done a a lot more drugs which he was already doing quite a bit back then (laughs) i I believe but uh some of his later stuff like this like a scanner darkly which is a little bit later than i Mm -hmm. think I, i could be wrong about that um gets a little more psychedelic a little more um uh I don't want to navel gazy sounds dismissive, but a little more like experimental out there and experimental yeah. potentially while still covering similar topics and, and it's still being very clearly like a sci-fi, but it just, 
yeah, a little different. It was interesting. It is Philip K. Dick. He's a, he's a he's a guy. He's a guy <laughs> that wrote some books. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead now and find out a little bit about Radio Free Albemuth, the movie. Super secret cabal of evil revolutionaries. It's a figment of his imagination. Government declares war on a terrorist organization that doesn't even exist. But we're inclined to believe that you stage is breaking yourself. With any luck, this thing will just blow over. Not likely. Once the authorities open up a file on someone, they never close it. Life on this planet came from the star system called Albemuth. This is the satellite that serves as our link back. But this invasion is for our benefit, Nick. You and I and the others were chosen. You are the only woman I've ever loved. Then what are you doing? You're having a sexual affair with Mr. Ramchak. Whether I am or not is my business. It's not too late for you. If I'm going down, I'm going down with people I love. Here's to subversion. The authorities are looking for something subversive to show up in his books. But the fact is, we have a better chance to get a message out in a song. Radio Free Albemuth is a 2010 film written and directed and produced by John Allen Simon. This is his only writing and directing credit. The film stars Jonathan Scarf, Shay Wiggum, Alanis Morissette, as you mentioned earlier, Catherine Winnick, which you may know from Vikings, mm. or uh, that movie we did on Good, Bad, or oh Bad, God. Bad one time. I forgot can't she was in that. About, uh, was can't. that... Satan's Little Helper. Satan's Little Helper, which I believe has been copyright claimed and is no longer available, unfortunately. Scott Wilson, Hannah R. Hall, Ashley Green, Rosemary Harris, John Tenney, Rich Summer, or Sumner, I can't remember, Summer, I think, and Joel McKinnon Miller, uh, who Joel McKinnon Miller, most people know from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's Mm -hmm. one of the two dumb ones. I can't remember (laughs) their names, but it's been a uh, while. Scott Wilson... um... Because when I when I looked up the cast, oh Scott Wilson um, is uh, is Herschel from yeah. the, uh, the Walking. Dead. I was like I was squinting at him. I was like I know that guy's face. Yes, yes. <laughs> Scott Wilson. It's been so long since we watched The Walking yeah. Dead. Yeah, he's uh, Herschel <laughs> from The Walking Dead. Uh, and Rich Summer was in Mad Men among a bunch of other things, but uh, he was also the in in Glow. Rich Summer was uh, Allison Brie's boyfriend in like the first season oh. or husband or whatever. Yeah. Or that, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Rich Summer. So some people who've been in things. It's not like a cast of nobodies. There's some people in it. Uh, the movie has a 33% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, a 35 out of 100 on Metacritic, and a 5.7 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, this is a fun one. The film made $9,365 at the box office. That's according Ooh. to Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't know how accurate that is, but uh, yeah. So uh, here's a little bit. There's not a lot out there about this movie because it is a, you know, a a small movie that didn't get a big release and that sort of thing. So it's not a ton of like background information, but I was able to find a little bit in 2004. Utopia Pictures and Television acquired the rights to three Philip K. Dick novels, including Radio Free Albemuth. The writer, uh, writer, writer, director, producer uh, Simon uh, said that the film was originally going to be released under the title Vallis. Hmm. He explained, quote, the script is based at this point almost entirely on Radio Free Albemuth. The financiers, uh, financiers like the title Vallis better, so that's the tentative title. Since Radio Free Albemuth is essentially the first draft of Vallis, which is what you mentioned earlier, we ended up with the rights to both uh, we ended up with the rights to both from the estate of Philip K. Dick. 
He then went on to say, quote, if Radio Free Albemuth is successful, Vallis the book would form the basis for the sequel to Vallis the movie. Boy. <laughs> In other words, the story of Vallis from, uh, would form the basis for Vallis 2. Now, that all being said, the movie did not come out under the title Vallis. It right. came out under the title Radio Free Albemuth. My guess for that, and I was not able to find anything, is that once some, some higher-ups saw the film... And said, well, we're not getting a sequel. This, we mm -hmm. don't, we still, maybe they still wanted to do something with Vallis and yeah. didn't want to tie this to it, <laughs> yeah. is my guess. Is they were like, this will be its, its own movie. Probably a pretty good guess. Yeah, uh, this will, we don't care anymore. It's bad. Uh, who knows if it's bad or not? I'm just saying that's probably what they thought would be my guess as why it's called Radio Free Album if it's not Vallis. Uh, so the movie was filmed in October of 2007. Uh, and had been stuck in post-production hell for three years till 2010. Uh, they then showed an incomplete cut to independent film festivals, and then a successful Kickstarter campaign in 2013 eventually raised funds to give the film a very limited theatrical release. Oh, the glory days of Kickstarter. Yes. 2013. So in, in production hell for three years, or post-production hell for three years, and then another three years before it got a theatrical release, uh, thanks to Kickstarter, and then it made $9,000. <laughs> so it got a, that Kickstarter theatrical release probably put it in like a few theaters for a weekend or something for it to make $9,000. Uh, so uh, as I said, they filmed it in October 2007, and during that filming uh, were some of the worst fires in L.A. County history at the time, uh, and that affected their filming locations and scheduling, and they ended up having to find replacement loca locations for a lot of the filming because... Mm -hmm of the fires that were going on. They weren't able to shoot where they originally wanted to. This is random, but fun. Colin Farrell apparently frequently visited the set, uh, to hang out with his buddy, Shay Wiggum. Just showing up. <laughs> I mean, he was in minority report like a year oh, yeah, or two before was. this. So he's, he was in a Philip K. Dick, if not at least one. I mean, I think minority report was the only one he's in. Cause he's not in scanner darkly. Yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, he apparently he's friends with Shea Wiggum. Um, so, uh, some critics' opinions on Radio Free Albemuth. This is, this is fun. Jeanette Katsoulis dismissed the film's, quote, stiff staging and so-so special effects in the New York Times before concluding, quote, the excellent Shea Wiggum as a science fiction writer is our guide and narrator, but even his gravitas won't keep you from laughing at an, at an extraterrestrial who thinks that hiding subliminal messages in pop songs is the way to start a revolution. End quote. <laughs> so uh, Jeanette was not a fan. Uh, and Shea Wiggum does play Philip K. Dick. So yeah. I don't know why they didn't... This this author wrote Shea, the excellent Shea Wiggum as a science fiction writer. I, okay. Maybe she didn't say Philip K. Dick. His name's Philip K. Dick. <laughs> He's not a science fiction writer. He's like one of the science fiction writers, but sure. Um, Richard Kuipers of Variety called it, quote, an engrossing adaptation that operates successfully as a study of enlightenment and a straight ahead conspiracy thriller. So Richard uh, Variety liked it or their critic liked it. John DeFore of the Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter wrote, quote, Though it echoes a scanner darkly in a few pleasing ways, Albemuth is a substantially less satisfying affair, one whose longures and deliberately cheesy effects deliberately with a question mark saying, I don't know, maybe they're intentionally bad, 
and deliberately cheesy effects work, uh, cheesy effects work will alienate all but Dick's hardcore devotees. Devotees. How do you say that word? Devotees. I would I would have said devotees, but I, I think don't it's devotees. Devotees. Wow. Now I'm really blanking on how to say that word. Wow. I feel like I both of those sound right in my head. Uh, devotees. Yeah. See, devotee. Devotees. Devotee. There you go. Uh, and finally, Gary Goldstein of the Los Angeles Times called it, quote, a sluggish, often cheesy sci-fi thriller. Interesting. So those are the reviews of Radio Free Album that's going in. But uh, we're going to withhold judgment and see what we think of it. Uh, I like a lot of the actors that are in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever seen Alanis Morissette in anything that isn't Dogma. She's in Dogma, right? I'm pretty sure she's I've in never, Dogma. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything. I've never seen Dogma. I'm pretty sure she's in Dogma. Uh, and other than that, I don't think I've ever seen it or anything other than music videos, so I'm interested <laughs> to see. Uh, but uh, uh, the other people, Rich Summer's good and stuff. Uh, Shea Wiggum from the stuff I've seen him in is good. Uh, Scott Wilson's good. Joel McKinnon Miller, I've only ever seen him in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And I don't know who Jonathan Scarf is or Scarfy or however you pronounce it, but I'm, I'm excited to watch it. But where can you watch it? That's an important question. As always, check your local library, or if you still have a local video rental store, go check with them. Uh, you can stream it with a subscription to Prime Video or Hoopla. So this one's easy for us. Mm-hmm. Prime Video. I don't know what Hoopla is. I've never heard of that. I don't that's either. a new one. <laughs> uh, you can also stream it with ads on Tubi. So that's even easier. Free. You can watch it with ads on Tubi. Or you can rent it for three to five dollars on Vudu, Fandango Now, Apple TV, etc. Probably YouTube TV, all those places, if I had to guess. Um, but yeah. Radio Free Albumuth is our next episode. Uh, I've read a little bit of a synopsis mm-hmm. just to kind of see, and I'm excited. The it the, the like the first sentence or two of the synopsis that did like the world building felt very um, prophetic. Yes, <laughs> like I was like, oh boy, Philip K. Dick out here uh, predicting he the was... future. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he was talking to God, but he might have been seeing into the future. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Again, from the first sentence or two that I read, I was like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. I was, uh, I'm, I'm excited to watch it, even though it's supposedly not, not a particularly great movie, but um, it's still, it still should yeah. be very interesting. So. And maybe we can have a little bit of fun razzing on it. If yes. It's not that good. As well. Maybe we got some <laughs> fun, cheesy effects to talk about. So we'll be discussing Radio Free Albumuth in one week's time. And until that time, guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep being awesome.